Hey guys, welcome to this week's episode of So What Else. I'm your host, Caitlin. As you know, So What Else is a story-based podcast. So today I am honored to have on here Jill McElyay, who is actually sharing the story of 63 million girls who are missing in India. Yes, you heard that correctly. 63 million girls missing in India. Jill is here today to talk all about her organization that she is the president and co-founder of. It's called Invisible Girl Project. And I'm not going to give any of it away, okay? It's absolutely mind-blowing what is going on in India and how Jill has stepped up to make a difference. She has been working at this for 11 years. They have saved 800 girls. It's fascinating. It's so interesting, okay? But listen, warning. Obviously, there's some heavy stuff in this episode, okay? There's violence going on in India, scary things. So just be aware that this conversation obviously gets heavy. But honestly, this is going to sound insane, but I had a blast talking to Jill, which I know sounds kind of crazy because it was such a heavy topic, but she's fantastic. We just really hit it off. I had so much fun talking to her. She's so engaging. She's so knowledgeable, so smart. It's incredible. If you're looking for something to do with your children this holiday season to help get them involved with helping others and being aware of the needs around the world, this is a great thing. If you're looking for somewhere to donate your money, this is a great place, okay? She gives all the details at the end of ways that you can get involved and everything is linked in the show notes, okay? So stay tuned. Jill, welcome to So What Else. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Caitlin. It's truly a privilege. I'm so glad to meet you. Yay. Okay. And so now I know your last name is not McElia. It's McElyay. Yes. Which is more fun. I think it kind of, I mean, people are like, what is that? French or something? And no, 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 no. It's Scottish. It's okay. not, it's not, it's not my maiden name. So I married into it. Right. Such a hard name. You would never look at it and say McElyay. Totally. That's how they say it. Yeah. What was your maiden name? It was Ulrich. Okay. So that's it's a, a little, little hard, hard too. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. But this is maybe a little harder. Yeah. This this is definitely harder. Because I, I went from being Chicola, which was, most people got it right. But some people would say like Chicola or whatever. And now I'm Elliot, which is like, no oh, one's yeah. no one's going to mispronounce that. Mm-hmm. What is Chicola? Is that... Italian? Italian. Yeah, yeah. It is funny because like me and all of my cousins, I feel like regardless of the type of guy that we married, we all had these very Italian last names like Chocola, DiMatteo, Callahan, Mm -hmm. all these. And we all married guys with last names like Elliot, Martin, (laughs) Carpenter. Like it's like very, (laughs) like very basic. Like we went from like really Italian sounding to uh-huh. like very just like white. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know what Generic. I mean? Just yeah. Okay. Well, I love the fact that you're Italian because even though I am five foot 10 with blonde hair, I am, I used to always claim a half Italian, even though realist, I'm love, my grandfather, my grandfather, last name was DiMarco. And Ugh. he um, was born here, but had to go back to Italy, like when he was an infant oh. and he was there. So I'm mean, like birth records and everything were so different in the early 1900s. Yeah. So we, we think he was born here. We're not sure. Maybe he was actually born in Italy, but yeah. So we've got the Italian thing going. So I love that. I love that. I had some students with the last name DeMarco. I love that last name. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I do too. Yeah. I think it's so nice. I love being I love Italian it. too, because it's all about cousins and family and totally. I mean, 
I mean, that's totally stereotypical, but it just is. But it's true. It absolutely is true. Yeah. And like the thing that's like so crazy is that, okay, I have not, I've weaned myself off of the real housewives. Okay. Everyone, this is my first time publicly admitting it. I've weaned myself off. I know it's trashy TV, but in my soul. Is this your first time that you're publicly admitting that you weaned yourself off? Or is this the first time you're admitting that you even watched it? First time admitting that I weaned myself off. Okay. So yeah, so people knew that I'm a, and listen, I, I have a weakness for reality TV. I'm sorry. I like, I can't help it. I get so sucked in. Mm-hmm. And so the housewives was like my entry. That was like my, what do they call that? Like your entry drug or whatever. What's that <laughs> called? Uh, gateway. It's gateway your- drug. It was my gateway drug to reality TV. And it's, it's such a doubt. It's not a look. I'm. I don't advocate for it. I'm not saying this is how we should spend our time. Is watching reality TV. I don't think it's great. So like, I've finally weaned myself off of the housewives. Can I promise everyone that I'll never go back? I can't promise. I might relapse. But for a long time, I was a big fan of the Real Housewives of New Jersey, and they are like, I mean, Italian beyond beyond Italian. But. Everyone on that show, I had a family member with the same name as everyone <laughs> on that show. Like, it's like, this is, I was just like, we can't, it, you can't even help yourselves. Like, Aww. you know what I mean? It's like on that show, everyone is named Joe. That was my brother's name. Like, you know what I mean? Like all of their names. It's like my cousins. It's just like the Italians. I don't know. We can't help it. No, I love it. And we're very, very enthusiastic and passionate people too. So please. I know. I mean. I know. My husband was scared. My husband was scared when he started dating me and he first was at like a family meal. He was like, everyone was screaming at each other. And I was like, but nobody was mad. It was just how we talk. Exactly. Exactly. My husband has said that before too. Like, wait, you guys weren't angry. Like in the beginning, you were, no, uh -uh, that's just how we talk. It's just how we talk. It's just loud. And I know that you are, you're into Enneagram. I remember you talking. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I'm, what are you? Enneagram. Okay, so I claim eight, but I am like equally eight and seven. Okay, so yeah. Some things that are like, oh, that's me. And then I go see a seven. I'm like, no, that is me. So totally. Um, but imagine that personality with adventure and then also very direct being Italian. I'm just, you know, and they say that eight, eight women are the hardest anyway to like understand and like to... I don't know. So, I love that though. You're right. That's a lot. But listen, yeah. I always say on this podcast, I'm jealous of sevens. I feel like sevens are the best number. Mm-hmm. I mean, isn't seven right. in general supposed to be like the perfect number or something like that? But yes. I just mean like the description. It's like, <laughs> you're so fun. And I do think though, I actually didn't know this for a while. I'm a one. I think in growth or whatever, I go to seven or something, something like that, which like makes me really happy that I like have some seven in me because I love seven. You do. So that is my husband is a one. Brad oh, love yeah, he's that. A one. He's very like classically a one. He will tell you that. And, um, and I think that he appreciates when, you know, like in health, he goes to my seven side and we, he, he loves the adventures that we have Mm -hmm. together that he might not necessarily do on his own. So I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And the eight in you is Mm -hmm. probably what got you to where you are and doing the work that you are doing professionally, which we're going to get to in two seconds. But also I wanted to say, congratulations, you survived the stomach bug in your house this week. (laughs) 
Uh, Thank you. Yeah. So if you're listening, I was supposed to talk to Caitlin a couple of days ago and you're so generous for rescheduling with me. Oh, please. So my husband's out of town for work and I, um, we have two little girls who just had their birthdays. They were, um, one, our youngest turned nine and and the eldest turned 12. Mm. And of course, when, you know, hubby's gone, they, that's when all hell breaks loose. It's true. And there's also, which I totally love that like, okay, well, daddy's gone. We get to sleep in the big bed with mom, which means I don't get great sleep, but you know, I'm cheering yes. as long as I can. Cause yes. you know, there's going to be time they don't want to sleep. Totally. You know? So it was a night we're in bed and gosh, the 12 year old, she started feeling sick and I don't know as a mom, I'm like, okay, is this, she not want to go to school. Yes, totally. That, you know, and that, that's terrible. I should No, I think that first every time. Are you kidding me? I'm like, what is she trying okay. to get out of? Right. Every time, that's my first thought. Right. And so, you know, and also I will say when when daddy's out of town, like I am totally a sucker. I am. Mm-hmm. Like because it's yeah. hard. You're the, you're there, you have no backup. So it's like, no. what are you doing? No, no. So I'm playing, I'm pa- playing zone defense with the two of them. So mm-hmm. um so she just, the 12 year olds got sick everywhere. It was awful. Mm. It was brutal. And she's not, my kids don't get fevers normally. And yeah. they also are not pukers. Yeah. And so she literally, I don't think that she had, had vomited since she was like four. Oh, so, so she was like, not, not used to it whatsoever. No, she was like, oh, that's what it feels like. I forgot. Cause it has horrifying. So bless her heart. Listen, the stomach bug is the worst thing ever. Like I always say, like, you know, it's like during the years of COVID and stuff when everybody was flipping out because school was getting, you know, classes would get quarantined and they would get shut down for COVID. And I would always say, listen, they should have always been doing this for the stomach bug because I swear to you, like parents would rather their children quarantine than get the stomach bug. It's so terrible. Like I'm like, I am in favor of if your kid is puking, Let's quarantine the class. I don't care. I don't want my child getting it. Like, it's horrible. I, and I don't want it. <laughs> well, wait. But see, I've heard you on other podcasts. Like, I know about your gag reflex. Oh, and- <laughs> it's so true. At this point, I should just be used to it. It's so bad. You know what? It honestly, like I said that to someone the other day. Like, I was like, I feel like this pregnancy is kind of like a sick joke or something because I genuinely was one of those people that like actually had a fear of vomiting. Like I really, really, (laughs) really, really would do anything to not vomit. And now this pregnancy, it's like, it's so commonplace that it's like, I'm obviously over my fear because how could I not be? You know what I mean? So it's like, I don't know if it was like a sick joke or it was just like a growth opportunity for me. I really, (laughs) I don't know, but here we are like yeah. with me puking constantly. And now my kids are very comfortable with it as well. So maybe now they're not scared of it either. Cause they're like, Oh yeah, she's puking. Oh, well that, I mean, I guess that's a good thing that they're great. Just like puking, I guess. Yeah, exactly. So how fine. are you feeling now? Are you feeling a little better? I definitely turned a corner, which of course, like, and I know I'm not a superstitious person, but I'm like, every time I say that out loud, then it comes back to bite me. I'll probably throw up tonight, but I have been feeling better on the nausea front the headaches, I usually get like about one a week, but like this week, and cause I would get one and it would last 24 to 48 hours mm-hmm. and it would like take me out. Oh, yeah. But like this week I got one and by like six hours later it was gone. So I was like, oh, improvement, improvement. So I do. And I feel like I have more energy. Mm-hmm. I even did a little workout this morning. Mm-hmm. Wow. Like, you know, yeah. So like I'm feeling okay. I'm feeling okay. Good. 
Good. I'm glad to hear that. Good. I cannot complain. So listen, I could just chit chat with you I know. all the day long. I, I mean, know, this is so fun. fun. Yes, yeah. this is so fun. So listen, tell us though, introduce yourself to everybody. Cause at okay. this point we're, you know, how many minutes in we're 10 minutes in and everyone's <laughs> like, who is this woman? Who, who are you? We know you're a mom. We know you're a wife. That I'm a crazy tall blonde <laughs> Italian. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. So yeah. So my husband, Brad and I've been married for, it'll be 14 years this December. And, um, we got married in our thirties. Um, we have just a, I love how God knitted our paths together and brought us both from like place of brokenness just to his redemption, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my husband, Brad is just my best friend. And, um, I am so thankful that, uh, I get to be his wife. And again, we have two little girls and we live in Raleigh, North Carolina. That's where um, my husband works remotely for a large uh, company that's actually out of Chicago, but he gets to work from Raleigh, which is fun. And I am the president and CEO of Invisible Girl Project. And uh, Invisible Girl Project's mission is to save girls' lives in India on the other side of the globe. to end the atrocity of female gender side, which mm-hmm. is the systematic killing of girls just because they're female. Mm. So I, I, I never heard of this before. I heard it. I told you this, like I heard an interview with you and that was the first time I ever heard of this. Like I, I've heard of this from China. Yeah. I've never yeah. heard about this going on in India. Why, why is that? So you're right. I mean, I think that we've known, I can't even tell you for as long as I've known that this has happened in China and there was that discrimination, but it's happening in India too. And the numbers are every bit as bad in India as they are in China. Mm. And I don't know if, if we don't know about it because India is an ally. Um, India is the largest democracy in the world. It's also, um, this, the, preference for sons, which is what really perpetuates this problem is widely accepted in Indian culture. Now, of course, not across the board. Like I'll get into telling you more about like what we do and how Mm -hmm. we do it working with Indians. But, um, it's, it was such a tradition and such a part of the culture to have to the desire to have sons and do anything to have sons, including eliminate your own daughters in hopes that you would have a son and out of superstition, um, that it's just been practiced for so long and accepted that perhaps that's why we don't know about it in the Western world. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think also here in America, we, you know, we kind of live in our own bubble. And yeah. I mean, I know I certainly do. Mm-hmm. I'm to that. Like, you know, we're comfortable in our everyday routines. We're so busy. We It's easy to really turn a blind eye to what's going on, on the other side of the globe. But um, my husband, Brad, and I were living in India when we learned about this problem. And um, we were confronted with it in a way that we couldn't turn a blind eye. Mm. It was so much like, oh my goodness, now that we know about this, what do we do? So, yeah. yeah. So correct me if I'm wrong. In China, it's more of like a government thing. But in India, it's not like the government, like they're not for this. No, not at all. Not at all. So in India, there was always the one child policy. And so in the culture, if you could only have one child, you want to have a son. And so um, people would do, you know, have abortions or eliminate their daughters because if they can only have one living child, they want to have a son. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Yeah, the Indian government is totally different um, than China in that respect. There are laws in place in India to protect girl children because India recognizes that this was a cultural practice for such a long time that they have implemented laws that um, make it actually illegal to uh, have an abortion if you know that you're having a girl. Oh. Because they know that, that, you know, people have often had sex-selective abortions. Okay. Um, Of course, female infanticide is illegal. It's murder. Um, Child marriage, which ultimately leads to girls going missing, is illegal. So the laws are totally Uh, in place. They're just not as widely enforced as the Indian government wants them to be. And so that's really what Invisible Girl Project does. Like, in order to save lives, we work alongside... We work with Indians in the Indian culture um, who are from India, they're community-based organizations, and they come alongside the government to help enforce the laws and do what they can to save girls. Okay. That's amazing. I mean, that is amazing. So I know the story Mm -hmm. of you starting. Take us back to the beginning. Like Invisible Girl Project, you already mentioned you and your husband were living in India because I know you were working for International Justice Mission, which, side note to the listeners, way back episode six, Hello. Like that is so long ago. We had Richard Lee from IJM. So if you want to know what is International Justice Mission, blah, blah, blah. He talks all about it and the work that they do. So you are a lawyer, right? You're a lawyer. You were working for IJM, living in India. Take it away. Yes. So I lived there actually as I was single all of 2008. My husband and I got married back in the United States in, in at the very end of 2008. But I had that whole first year in India really mm-hmm. by myself. Oh, wow. Um, And I was loving the work I was doing, was working with Indian lawyers to help them prosecute cases of bonded labor, um, slavery, and help rescue people from that bonded labor atrocity. And and so um, I loved it. I was having fun and started dating my husband long distance while I lived there. And then we got married in December of 2008. Then he took a sabbatical from his job in all of 2009, and we just weren't sure where what, yeah. what would happen, right? I mean, we didn't know if we'd live in India for the rest of our lives or what we'd be doing. But wow. um, we started off our adventure uh, as newlyweds living in India, and I have all kinds of stories. Oh, my goodness. Just the things we experienced as, you know, newlyweds. Here we are mm-hmm. married like three weeks, and, and yeah. it was amazing, too, because you know, you see something that um, either breaks your heart or surprises you or all the emotions. And it's like, you get to have that together as newlyweds. So that was fun. Yeah, totally. So we moved. um, So he, he, I say we moved to India, but he really moved over there and moved into my apartment that I had there. And so we're newlyweds. And uh, that was in January of 2009. And I was going to work every day and he, um, had kind of lined things up. He was going to do some missions work. He's a yeah. pharmacist by profession. And so he was going to do medical camps, but all those just kind of started falling through. Mm-hmm. We had friends that were going to do um, just an exploratory trip on female infanticide because we had heard rumors, frankly, there were people who um, had gone on missions trips to India, Americans, and who had had kind of talked about this, that they had seen or heard of infanticide going on in remote villages. Mm-hmm. And so we had Indian friends who were like, let's, let's go check this out. And they invited my husband, Brad, to come along. And so, you know, here we are, like maybe three weeks at this point. And um, he is on an overnight train to South India. Um, he doesn't speak the language or anything like that. And he um, gets to the villages and everywhere he went, uh, he was really just astonished that he would just see in these villages, boys would outnumber the girls. 
Mm-hmm. In one village in particular, the boys outnumbered the girls eight to one. Whoa. Eight to one. He just see little boys just running and playing. And he's like, where are the little girls here? And it's because female infanticide was widely practiced in that area and very acceptable. So by infanticide, you mean people would get pregnant, they would find out if they're having a boy or a girl, they would find out it's a girl, they would have an abortion. No, no, infanticide. So that's feticide. So okay. That's abortion. No, infanticide is where you have the baby, she's an infant, and you kill her. <gasps> so, yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you asked that question because, you know, I've been doing this work for so long. Like it just rolls off my tongue. Yeah. Yeah. need to know like, okay, Jill, define these things. So thank you for asking. Oh my goodness. So so infanticide, which is. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and and that's when my husband, Brad met uh, a young woman by the name of Asha. So she was 21 years old and knew her whole life that she was unwanted by her parents, that they Mm -hmm. desperately wanted a son. And in this area where she lived, it was, um, really just superstition that if you have a baby girl and you kill her when she's born, that the next child you have is going to be a boy. Oh my gosh. Oh. So Asha's parents desperately wanted to have a son. And again, you know, they were in a remote part of South India, likely did not have access to an ultrasound to tell them the gender, um, but also probably couldn't have afforded it or, you know, and it's illegal um, that doesn't right. happen. But it, but so uh, Asha's mother got pregnant with Asha's uh, first sister, I should say. And again, this is years before Asha was ever born. And uh, her mother uh, had a healthy pregnancy. And I imagine myself too, like just being a mom, like the first time I got pregnant and, and felt, you know, my little girl kick inside of me or mm-hmm. feel a flutter or all the sickness that I also felt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, you go through everything of a normal, he- healthy pregnancy, which is what Asha's mother had. Mm-hmm. and um, delivered a healthy baby girl. Uh, but at this baby girl's birth, there was no celebration because it, she wasn't the desired son. And so Asha's parents killed their own daughter. Which was- <sighs> so um, so that was Asha's first sister. And after that, Asha's parents wanted to have a son, got pregnant again, thinking that this time they would have the son and had another healthy, normal pregnancy. And Asha's mother delivered another healthy baby girl and they killed their second daughter. Mm. Asha's mother got pregnant again for a third time, delivered a healthy baby girl and killed their third daughter. Mm. They did this 11 times. To all 11 of their baby girls. And finally, uh, on the mother's 12th pregnancy, she got pregnant with Asha and delivered Asha. And, you know, we speculate that they just realized at that point they were never going to have a son. So they just decided to let Asha live. And so my husband, Brad, heard this story down on this exploratory trip. And um, he met Asha and she's just telling her story. And um, again, she knew her whole life. Like here she is this woman now, but as a girl, like that's not, you know, your parents didn't want you. Yeah. Um, She had just, she had been married and she had just had a baby girl of her own. Oh, wow. And she had decided to let that baby live. My husband, Brad, got to kind of be part of the the naming ceremony for her little girl. And in India, it's very cultural that when you name your child, it really kind of legitimizes the birth of this Mm -hmm. little girl. So um, my husband got to be part of that. 
And so not only did he experience the the really hard part and, and, and the awful part of hearing the story, but then kind of the redemptive part of seeing Asha now, who's a grown woman who yeah. is independent and then has her own daughter who, who is going to live. So Brad travels back on the train. Uh, and I just remember he came to our apartment. We met that one evening, you know, I got off work and we're just sitting across the table from each other uh, over dinner. And he's just telling me this story. And I remember us looking at each other and we both just had tears running down our faces. And we just knew we we had to do something. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that was because maybe it's because he got to be part of the redemptive part too, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. It's just a little part in helping, you know, with this naming ceremony. What else could we do to help more girls, to help women like Asha and baby girls who who um, deserve to live? So it just was, you know, we say that's the day that Invisible Girl Project was birthed. We, mm-hmm. um, we didn't know at all, like we really legitimately were going to start a nonprofit or anything like that. It wasn't something right. we set out to do. He's a pharmacist. I'm a lawyer. Uh, we hadn't had experience in certainly starting a nonprofit. I had great experience in working for IJM though, and seeing how, what an excellent nonprofit does. And we learned mm-hmm. so much just from, from my time with IJM. So at the end of that year, we moved back to the United States and uh, really set things in motion to start Invisible Girl Project. And we became a nonprofit, a 501c3 tax-exempt organization in 2011. And uh, in our history, we've been able to rescue, uh, save the lives of over 800 little girls. Wow. Oh, that's so beautiful. So, okay. (sighs) My head is like spinning with this. So, Take going backtracking to Asha's family. Yeah. So these parents killed eleven babies. Do people around them know that this is going on? Like, is this the type of thing where somebody would like call the cops on them? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, what is that? What's the vibe with that? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I think for her family specifically, I think it is an example of what really does go on, particularly in remotes, remote areas of, of South India. You have about 70% of the Indian population that lives in villages, right? Okay. Um, and you have people who um, really don't have access to probably police or, right. um, and you have something that's so acceptable, right? It's just accepted that, you know, a girl's life is worth nothing. And so even if you know that this is going on, you're probably going to mind your own business and not get involved. But also, she's just a girl, right? Oh, yeah, so, yeah. So, um, so it happens. And it happened. Mm-hmm. And so, but what again, like what we learned just even in the course of 2009 is that there were laws in place to protect little girls, mm-hmm. whether it was to protect them from female infanticide being killed at birth or female feticide, like the sex selective abortion. The laws are in place to protect girls because India recognizes that this is a problem. It's just a matter of being in, really being enforced. And, okay. um, and so that is what one thing that we do at Invisible Girl Project now. Um, we have a, a program called our Teaching and Transforming Program, mm-hmm. and it's truly about education. So not only are we rescuing girls and saving their lives uh, through social workers who are on the ground, we are teaching people the laws that are in place to protect girls. 
And we get mixed, you know, mixed feedback from people, whether it's people don't know that, wait, this is still happening in my culture. Mm. Or people say, I didn't know that that law could protect my daughter or or it could protect me. So that's a huge part of what we do now is teaching and transforming just to teach people that the laws are there. Mm -hmm. They they need to be enforced. Um, And we, that's again, where we want to come alongside the Indian government to help get these laws enforced. Okay. So, all right. So we've talked about the feticide, infanticide. I know there's also though, like a whole other thing of like, you kind of mentioned it a little bit, like girls getting married off young and there's like the whole trafficking child bride thing. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that to us? Like what that is? Sure. So India, because this has been going on for so long, it's estimated by the Indian government that there are 63 million girls and women who are missing from India's population. And so we say 63 million is like the equivalent of the whole East Coast of the United States, like basically from D.C. down, just being wiped out. And um, it's hard to kind of wrap your mind around just those numbers. But when you have that visual of, okay, imagine, I mean, I'm in North Carolina, like everyone in my state just, just being eliminated. Everybody on the whole East Coast just totally, but just being wiped out. That's what's happened to girls and women. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, with that said, India ha- has millions and millions more men than women. Mm-hmm. You have the pop- the latest Indian census, it was from 2011, uh, showed that there were 37 million more men than women in the population. So wow. you have 37 million men who are, who are not going to get married. Who, right. You know, so there is a supply. I mean, it sounds terrible. Supply and demand issue, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's not enough women. And so girls, young girls are a valuable commodity then because they can be trafficked as child brides or into brothels to service men. So um, I th- what we have seen is that's certainly one of the ways that girls go, quote unquote, missing from India. Okay. Is because once, you know, you have a little girl who's 10, 11, 12, who's married off as a child bride, you know, she's going to then be forced to give birth to a son. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the cycle perpetuates, it's, it's a problem. And you, you know, she may die in childbirth, you may of never course. hear her again. She has no voice. She has no life. She's basically, you know, forced to do things that a 10, 11, 12 year old shouldn't do. Wow. Okay. Oh, I mean, that, ugh, that's no. so much. That's so much. No. Tell me about your uh, rice program. That okay. you guys have. So I mentioned Teach and Transform, and that's that's mm-hmm. something that we saw. Really, it started in COVID um, because there was just this need to teach more people, particularly government officials, police officers, mm-hmm. about the laws because um, we heard from different government officials that we worked with on the ground in India that they were expecting child marriage rates to go up during COVID. Oh, and so, our first training that we ever did was like to a police sta- uh, police station. There was like 40 police officers. We taught them the laws that protect wow. girls from married as child brides and um, got to have a hand in really educating them on the laws that they should be enforcing. So with that said, for years before, in, in the almost 10 years before, we've been doing this work on the ground called our RICE program, which you mentioned. RICE stands for rescue intervention, care, and empowerment. 
What we do is we rescue little girls who are vulnerable. And we say rescue, that's preventing them from being killed, trafficked. And uh, the way that we do that is through social workers who are on the ground in their own communities, who created relationships in these different villages or cities, wherever they are. And they're able to identify when girls are vulnerable, when they're at risk. They know that the red flags that pop out to them. And we have a scale to determine where on, you know, what is their level of vulnerability? Do they need immediate rescue? Or are there, you know, are, is this something that the social workers can counsel the family on or, you know, what, what level of vulnerability is there? So with that said, with rice, we determine whether a young girl needs to be rescued. If she is most vulnerable, we will rescue that little girl, bring her out of a situation where she could potentially be killed or trafficked. And we put her in our aftercare program immediately. Um, and with that too, we're working with the government to let them know, okay, this is what we're doing. We're calling on them for assistance to intervene where necessary with the law to protect this girl. So she is not harmed Mm -hmm. and then, um, then care. So we provide care and that includes meeting the little girl's needs, uh, teaching her that she's valuable. So not only are we providing her physical needs, but we're providing her trauma counseling and helping meet her emotional needs as well. And, um, And then we teach our girls that they should be empowered. Like we want them to be change agents in India. So everyone of over our 800 rescued girls, is learning now that mm. their lives are valuable, that they're inherently valuable, that they have opportunity and that we're going to help them um, achieve everything that they want to be mm. and um, empower them so that someday they can help change India uh, from within. Mm-hmm. That's amazing to help change India from within. I love that line. That's so beautiful. And you're right. Like what better way to do that than with girls that you that have been rescued from that. You know what I mean? Like who else would feel strongly about the cause, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really, really beautiful. I remember hearing you say at one point, or maybe it was on your website, something about like uh, a lot of times in India, there's still like a dowry situation happening. And so parents might be tempted to marry their daughter off younger. Can you explain that? Like mm-hmm. like dowries for idiots. Like what is that? How does that work? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, you made me like just get a flash in my mind. Sorry, that yellow book dowry for dummies. Yeah, for dummies. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, because it is so foreign to us, right? We, yeah. we this is something that we can't wrap our minds around. So in India, again, because girls are considered less valuable, you have to it's practiced still, even though it's illegal, that you pay the groom's family to marry your daughter. Okay. So that's how dowry works. So if I um, am poor and don't have a lot of money uh, and dowry is usually very, very expensive, um, you know, I've been saving it my whole life. It's, it's also considered kind of shameful for you not to have a married daughter at some point. If she becomes kind of an old maid, it's, you know, okay. I say old maid, if she's in her twenties, even mid twenties, and she's not oh, wow. off, it can be perceived as being, you know, it's shameful that your daughter hasn't been married because India, which I love about India is it values family so much. And so mm-hmm. to just continue to uh, have your family 
your family continue in the lineage, you want your, your family, your daughters to get married. And so, um, and of course, sons want to get married. And so with that said, um, you know, you want your daughter to get married because it'd be shameful if she, Mm -hmm. if she's not. And so you save up your whole life to have your daughter married off or from the time she's born. So you're poor already and you know, you're going to have to give up so much of your, any wealth that you have to get your daughter married off. So she's just considered a liability from the time she's born. There's actually, um, a saying in Hindi that is, um, when you have a daughter, it's like watering your neighbor's garden. Oh my goodness. Isn't that interesting? Because you're going to, uh, and also it's, it's cultural that when your, your daughter gets married, she leaves your family then. Mm-hmm. And she goes and marries uh, her groom and lives with his parents and helps take care of the parents. It's it's a bit of a social security system that's an informal social, like it's not, of course, the proper social security system by any means. It's it's something that's just cultural. And so you then expect as people in your old age, you're going to have your son married off because you need somebody to take care of you. And so yeah. that's very, very cultural in practice across the board. And wow. so you lose your daughter to dowry and then you lose her because she's taking care of her in-laws in their old age. And so she is, you know, watering their garden and not your own. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So people are tempted to marry their daughter off younger. So it's not as expensive. Right. That's okay. right. Because a young girl is going to be much less expensive in dowry than someone who is perhaps in her 20s, mid-20s, right? You know, mm-hmm. at this point, again, she's kind of perceived as an old maid, potentially. And so you have to pay more dowry for her. So, but it's it's interesting because, you know, again, dowry is illegal and it just, these laws need to be enforced. So what's happening in different places in India, which is fantastic, is there are um, villages and in parts of cities that are standing up saying, this is a dowry-free zone. Your Mm -hmm. dowry is not practiced here because they want to, again, change the culture. They know that dowry harms women in India. And so in order to protect women in that area, they're going to say, no, dowry is not practiced. And if this is something you're doing, you can't live here. Okay. Okay. I think I heard you share a story um, of a girl who knew she was going to get married off and ran away in the night. Do you know what I'm referring to? Yeah. Would you share about her? Yeah. Okay. So I'd love to. Yeah. She's just awesome. (laughs) Um, So we change all of our our girls' names just to protect their identity. So uh, she is a girl in our our program. I'll call her the letter A today. Mm -hmm. So um, she, I met her and she's just so smart and she's just a fireball. Um, She is, loves school. I think she you know, it's one of those things you're excelling in school, you're doing well. She realizes that she's smart and want, has big dreams, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, even as a young girl at, you know, 10, 11, 12, doing so well in school, having ideas of what she wanted for her future. And I think like any, you know, any child who, I know when I was little, certainly like I thought, I was going to go to Harvard and be a brain surgeon, but, um, and that did not happen. But you're a lawyer. <laughs> oh, thanks. It's still very but, high achieving. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a dream. Like, and she had totally. her dreams. Yes, and yes. so, um, so her parents, um, as she started to get a little bit older, pulled her from school and we're going to make mm. her 
start working to earn more dowry, right? For the Mm. family. And she knew that she was going to be married off. And so she basically in like at night ran away from her family, escaped and walked eight miles barefoot um, to find our partner. Wow. As I mentioned, our partners are, are Indians, Indian organizations who are on the ground in the communities. She had heard that they were doing awesome work uh, with Invisible Girl Project, and she found our partner and said to them, will you please help me? I do not want to get married. I want to go to school. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to then prevent her marriage and to rescue her, put her oh, in a safe wow. place. She lives in um, a safe home. One of our partners uh, works with a safe home in that area. And so she's able to go to school mm-hmm. and we'll send her to college. And so oh. what happens is girls like A, um, we will you know, we rescue them, we put them in a safe place. And then through our child sponsorship program, Mm -hmm. we have someone in the Western world. um, Most of our sponsors are from the US or the UK. Um, We have some sponsors in India actually, but who supports, they choose a girl to support and they send $50 a month and that helps meet her needs. And then it'll help pay for her education, whether she's in, you know, elementary school or junior Mm -hmm. high, or ultimately like we send our girls to college and um, they will graduate from the program. Like when they're 21 or they've graduated from college. So in a situation like that with a, like her parents, what did they do when they realized she was gone? Like, and now she's in this, like, do they even know where she is? Like, what's the deal? So with her specifically, we work because we work in those villages, our social workers, at that point, like create relationships and try and get the parents to sensitize the parents to these issues. Um, And we want the parents to see their daughters as valuable and Mm -hmm. not as just commodities or, um, you know, worth nothing. Just so uh, that's what we try and do. And we want to keep that relationship between each one of the girls and her parents. We really, again, think India can change through this counseling and in changing mindsets of family members so that they see daughter's value. So that's what we do with all of them. And um, again, if we rescue a girl and we determine that she is not safe in that moment, again, we'll put her in a safe house, but we mm-hmm. ideally would love to keep her with her parents. Right. And, and we see that that, that works too. So, mm-hmm. um, I, I could tell you all kinds of stories. We've had stories of little girls, just little like newborns and one, two year olds who, um, are vulnerable to being killed and who, our partners come in there. They see that these little girls are vulnerable and they just start counseling the families right away. Amazing. And they help the families see that these girls um, are valuable and it's through counseling and just changing that mindset. Also placing these girls in our child sponsorship program because mm-hmm. we're preventing them from being harmed that these parents then don't just feel like these girls are just another mouth to feed, right? They see a transference of value because we're giving, we're showing these families that these little girls have value. So we provide them food to the whole family. Mm. Um, And so a family that might not, you know, might be very, very poor and not even able to have anybody eat now is having regular meals because we're providing food to the whole family because we want to make sure that little girl gets fed too. And so there is, again, this transference of value. And then the family say, oh, what is this? organization that's doing this for us and that's caring for our girls and mm-hmm. then gives us credibility so that we can then counsel the families. And we have seen 
wonderful stories of minds that are changed. I've been on the field in India where I've had fathers come up to me, uh, fathers of our rescued girls, and just shake my hand and say, you know, I, I didn't want to send my daughter to school or I, you know, I, I would have married her off or whatever. But you, your partners helped change our mind. And we now oh. will do anything to protect our daughters. We'll do anything to make sure that they can be educated and go to school. And then what we've seen too through that is that it does change minds of people around them, right? Yeah. So, we call it the Kiran effect. And there was a young woman named Kiran and she was up in North India and she was the first girl in her village whose parents ever allowed her to go like continue on and graduate high school. And she ended up getting a great job. And so these other parents see this young woman named Kiran coming home with more money than they are ever able to make. Oh yeah. And so they're like, well, maybe I want my daughter to go to school too. And so you do see just that ripple effect of what education and education specifically of daughters can do. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, I read on your website that you said that it says, we are the sole international humanitarian organization working with Indian grassroots organizations to prevent trafficking before it occurs. Mm -hmm. I think that that's really incredible because you've mentioned it so many times through this interview, how you keep saying like our Indian partners, our partners out there, our partners that, you know, da, da, da. I think that that's the most powerful part probably of IGP and what makes it so successful is that you've partnered with Mm -hmm. Indians out there on the ground doing this work. Would you agree? Thank you. I, I, I like that about us. I really do Mm -hmm. feel like that's our our niche. And um, it was so important to me as someone who loves India um, and loves Indian people and respects the culture so much to not be that Westerner um, Mm -hmm. who had like the white savior complex. And yeah. I could just, you know, India, you need to change and I'm here to fix it by any means. Like Mm -hmm. that's something I wanted to always be really, really sensitive to. And the way that we do that is is not by telling Indians what they need to do to fix this problem. We just simply help Indians who want to partner with us. And we go through a really rigorous vetting process, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because we want to ensure that funds are going where they're supposed to and and partners are legit. And so we do vet them. We have processes processes in place. Um, And so then we partner with these organizations that want to partner with us, knowing that their work can be scaled. Like they Mm. may have been able to reach a small number of people, but with our help, they can, they can scale their work and reach even more girls. Mm. And so I, um, yeah, we're, we're the only uh, humanitarian organization working in that way to prevent girls from being trafficked or killed and working with Indians to make that happen. It's amazing. That is amazing. Mm-hmm. So listen, I'm sure people are listening to this and they're feeling like, how can I get involved? You know, hello, it's like getting close to the end of the year. I'm going to call it out. People are looking for like places to donate their money and whatever. Like, I'm sure you'll take a check. Like, what? <laughs> how, and you mentioned the child sponsorship program, which I yeah. know people, you explained it very well, but I feel like people are very familiar with that concept, right? Like, you know, there's other organizations that do this. Like you pay a certain amount every month. It helps this child 
in all these ways. So like, tell us about it. Like, how do you sponsor a child? Can you give a one-time gift? Like, what can you do? Yes, please. All of those things, (laughs) all of those things. So we, you know, we're a small organization in many ways. We've been around for 11 years now, but in those first years I was having babies. And so we didn't hire our first full-time employee to like four years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, and really, and since then IGP has grown and just Mm -hmm. haven't been able to hire, um, others to work full-time and and to, to grow it the way it needs to, to, to reach more people. But Mm -hmm. with that said, um, knowing that we are not a world vision or compassion, like our child sponsorship program is, um, it's small, but we're mighty. Mm -hmm. We, I've seen these girls, I've met them. Mm -hmm. Um, we say a hundred percent, and this is true. A hundred percent of child sponsorship donations go to the field, Mm -hmm. to India, to care for these girls. And so it provides, if you sign up to sponsor one of our girls, it's going to provide her monthly needs and her education and her counseling. Mm-hmm. And, Amazing. Um, and so you'll hear from, if you do that, you can go on the website and pick a girl. We have a number of girls who need sponsoring right now. It's a wonderful opportunity, especially towards the end of the year uh, to give a gift of sponsorship mm-hmm. to somebody. And so you could sponsor a girl for an entire year um, for somebody awesome. as a gift, or you can get them started with sponsorship. Mm-hmm. So um, please just go to invisiblegirlproject.org. It's all one word, okay. invisiblegirlproject.org. And you can uh, get involved and click on child sponsorship to see if you feel kind of called to sponsor a little girl. Mm-hmm. So that's one way to get involved. Another way is um, please follow us on social media. Mm-hmm. So we're on Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn at Invisible Girl Project. And um you'll see stories from the field. And what we ask people to do is because again, like we started, like people don't know about this problem. And right. Right. But through our social media, you can help us raise awareness. Mm-hmm. You can help us continue to grow this organization because we can't reach more girls if we don't have the funding to do it. Mm-hmm. And one way to do that is really just sharing the word. Because mm-hmm. again, just like Brad and I were compelled to take action, we think when people hear about this, that they'll be so astonished and be like, oh my gosh, what can I do to help? Yeah. That they'll want to help help give. And whether it's you know $10 one time or uh, a larger gift, we are happy for any gift because it goes so a really long way in India. So yeah. uh, we do ask like, as the end of the year goes, particularly giving Tuesday is our biggest day of giving. Okay. Um, we're looking our, our goal that day will be to raise $150,000 on giving Tuesday. Amazing. Um, I believe we're going to have a, a match that day. So we'll have a $75,000 match for if people give 75 online. And so uh, please give to invisible girl project on giving Tuesday. And that really just helps propel us into the new year. And awesome. um, into our work in 2023. Also on that day, it's it's if you follow us on social media, it's fun because we always reveal uh, who our Giving Tuesday girl is. And so we have a little girl who was rescued this year, and her story is just one of redemption and hope. And I can't wait to share her story with everybody. So please follow Invisible Girl Project, and you'll get to read this awesome story on Giving Tuesday. Oh, amazing! What's the Change for Change program that you're doing? So change for changes. We just ask people all the time, like, how can my kids get involved? And we ask yeah. kids to save their change, right? And Love so um, I just had three quarters fall out of my purse earlier today. So <laughs> all the time you find change, yes. couch cushions, all the time, or the car, just keep a little Ziploc bag, write IGP on it. 
put your change in the Ziploc bag as you find it. And we say, if you collect change, you can help us make a change in India. Mm. And so again, every little bit helps help make that change by collecting yours. I love that. I love that. I know that, that we have so many people listening to this that want tangible ways to get their kids involved. And I think that that's a, that's such a good, easy, practical way for kids to get involved and help. We will put all of that in the show notes, everybody, the website, the social media, the, all of the things will be linked right there. So you could just click it and it's very easy. Okay. Um, but listen, I cannot let you go without asking you our favorite question. What is your favorite snack right now? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, right now it is Chicago style popcorn. My husband. Oh, what's that? If my husband was just in Chicago, so he brought back Garrett's popcorn. Oh my gosh. It's caramel corn and cheese corn put together and it's amazing. And oh. I've been eating it all day long. So, I mean, that's an easy answer for me right now. So it's like a salty sweet situation. Oh, it's amazing too. And Garrett's is, there's free publicity for Garrett's and I don't mind at all because it's so delicious. So anytime you go to Chicago, make sure to get Garrett's. Wow. Okay. I am a popcorn person. I really enjoy popcorn and I really like sweet popcorns mix. Like I love that. Mm-hmm. I got to look that up. I got to look okay. that up. Yeah. Jill, this was amazing. I mean, we could go on forever. Like even if it's just like talking Bill <laughs> housewives, but I mean about <laughs> IGP, I on love, the- like this is inspiring me. It, I know that people are going to be very moved by this. Mm-hmm. I think that the work that you're doing is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I just applaud you. And I just think it's amazing. Truly, truly, truly amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to share with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thanks to everybody who's listening. And uh, maybe we'll just get to talk another time to you. I'll look forward to that. Absolutely. There are lots of stories I could share. Just um, I'm just a normal mom, really. Yeah. I grew up in the Midwest and I'm Italian, you know, half part Italian, part Polish, German, like all the things. I'm just a normal American. And yeah, but God really put this problem on my heart. And um, and so I'm so grateful to get to share with you all today what has gone on in my life and my passion um to help make a change for little girls in India. So thanks for having me. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CaitlinElliott.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And hey, if you want to toss us a five-star rating, I would love you forever. Check us out next week for another new episode. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at so.what.else. Editing and all that stuff by Matt Carpenter with Parable Productions.